0: for listening to our podcast recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. We're continuing for the benefit of any visitors through the Book of James and today's title, Helen, when you're ready, is All You Need Is Love. And I I bet anybody who saw the notices probably had this song come to mind. Um, Bit of pop trivia. Anybody know when this was released? What year? Come on, some of you oldies. Secret Beatles fans. 63. Yeah, 60s, you're right. Yeah, 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 come on. 68, 68, 67. Somebody say 67? Yeah, Ju- July, 7th of July, 1967. And which album was it in? Obviously no, no Beatles fans. I can't say I'm a Beatles fan particularly, but uh, any ideas what album? No, Becca's looking amused. Yellow Submarine. Oh, there we go. Um, the concept of the song, the reason they wrote it, I understand there was a big six-day six, six day festival or something where people came, songs from all around the world, and John and Paul Lennon, or Paul McCartney and John Lennon, were asked to write a song that would bring a song that was going to be understood by all people from all nations about love. So it was a whole thing about, you know, love and, and stuff. So that's... What an But I'm not endorsing their dress sense or their religious beliefs, but I just thought the title, that's what came to mind when I saw it. Um, okay, so we're looking at the book of James. If you just turn with, with me, please, to get your finger into 1 James, verse 27. And there are three themes that I want to kind of address today. Um, anybody who's read the book of James will know that actually it's a very punchy book. In the sense, there's a lot of stuff talked about being mature. Uh, And that's the thing is, God wants mature Christians. He wants you mature in your faith. He doesn't want you kind of constantly on the milk as such, as, as scripture says. But actually, he wants you to understand the meat. The meatier kind of theological stuff and actually grow and be effective. God wants you to be effective as a Christian in your workplace, in your families, wherever you may have come from. He wants you, you're there for a reason. None of you are an accident. Okay, you're there for a reason. And so James gives a lot of directives. There's actually 54 direct commands that James actually says in the book of James about living an authentic Christian life. And uh, um, f- for those who haven't heard, Catherine's excellent talk last week on trials and tribulations. I'm glad she had that one. Um, but again, if you haven't heard it, recommend it. So starting on the next slide, please. Thank you. It's religion. Religion. Um, we'll come to the verse. There's one verse that covers religion. and My observation is, is religion is a dirty word these days. If, if you look at what's going on in the Middle East, you know, is it ISIS or IS, what they call themselves, you look at what's gone in the, in the Catholic churches and just generally religion is a dirty word. And I think for a lot of people it's, it's an evil word, which is a shame, because I think it's a word that maybe as Christians we need to take back. And actually, if you understand what God says about religion, to what all the other yeah. flannel is about. It's actually something quite, quite precious. Um, but if you like me, I often like to read com- comments on, on YouTube and stuff. And uh, you look at some of the stuff, and I sense there's a real hatred about religion at the moment. If you watch any of the press previews, I watched one the other day, and woman, oh, I'm an atheist, and you know, bang, 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 having a go at religion. There is a real attack on anyone. And I think Mike Betts said a couple of weeks back a uh, thing about shame. They try to put shame on you for being a Christian. Well, you're a Christian. Oh, you know, how could you? Um, and that's sad. But that's just one of the attacks the enemy is doing at this time. And um, I was listening to a, a talk on apologetics the other week, and the guy mentioned about religion. And most people, for religion, means identity rather than belief. So what I mean by that is people who think, I'm born in the UK, it's a Christian country, therefore I'm a Christian, but actually have no belief in God. So for a lot of people... Religion isn't about, actually, do you have a personal relationship with God? It's actually, it's about identity. Oh, I'm a Muslim, or I'm a Hindu, because I just am, but actually I don't believe any of it. You know, it seems weird. But that's actually what a lot of people's concept is. And if you and I go down Astrid High Street, or wherever you come from, if you were to talk to people about religion, you would get so many contrasting comments about what religion is, shouldn't be, it's evil, etc. And if you look at I guess the continuous promotion of atheism Uh, and what's really interesting again if you listen to atheists a lot of the top atheists in the country now they don't say I just don't believe in God actually I'm anti-God and there's an anti-God agenda they don't now just just discuss about creation and evolution it's moved on to attacking God's very character or they will attack what we believe as Christians they would say it's evil the fact that you know we believe that people go to heaven some go to hell they would say that's evil and as, as Carl mentioned, we're doing an Apologetics Day and we'll be looking at some of these things because you, you, you need to know a response to that because that's what people are reading and listening to and hearing. So I want to encourage you, if you're interested in Apologetics, see Carl afterwards. Um, we've got some great stuff to cover. Uh, also, you look at nature programs. It's all about come from mammals and primal soup. And I actually think one of the most evil things about atheism is, is that they, they will teach you that we're just species that actually man is no longer significant. That actually you are no more significant than an ant on a a bit of wood or whatever, a bird. There's no difference. And yet you think, one John, uh, you know, that the word became flesh. There is something unique about humans, but they will attack that actually how precious mankind is. But I really believe it is something we need to reclaim back. So I just want to challenge you about religion. You know, it's a word we need to reclaim back. And actually, how do you kind can't of present religion. But let's have a look at what the Bible says about religion. Because it's a very emotive word. So verse 27 says this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this. To visit the orphans and widows in their afflictions and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And that's from the ESV version. Or the, or the NIV says, religion that is pure. Sorry, religion that our God, our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Okay, so if somebody says to you, What's, what, what does religion mean? There you go. It's to help those in need and to keep oneself being unstained from the world. And I'll unpackage that a bit later. So it's clear that if you read that, that it's more than just holding a religious belief or identity. But actually, our faith involves action. Okay, if you're a Christian here today, it's not about you and Jesus and in my bedroom and it's all very private, which again is what people say religion should be like. Actually, the gospel is very clear that we've got a mission that we are to share what Jesus has done. Again, Carl mentioned testimonies earlier. had great testimonies at the first meeting. God is doing great things. And actually, people are desperate for good news. Mm -hmm. If you talk to people, it's all doom and gloom, you know, economic, or whatever. Actually, people want good news. And we have some fantastic testimonies in this church. It also involves showing compassion and mercy in good deeds. And uh, James mentions some people might be recipients. So there's an orphan, widow, actually... We we should be compelled to help. We don't don't just turn the other cheek and walk off. It's also keeping ourselves from being tainted by immoral and godless living. You know, we're in the world, but not of the world. But again, uh, you know, the world, some stuff you know that goes on. You know, it it does seep into the church, and we've got to be careful that we actually guard our hearts and our thinking. And authentic Christian living isn't passive but it involves doing good deeds alongside a living faith. So having read this, you could suppose, as, as the Catholic Church do, that actually you can get saved by doing good works. You know, They call it the doctrine of merit and justification by works. But actually, we go and look and say, what does the Bible say? And it says this, that salvation is a free gift from God the Father, who's, which is on offer for anyone and everyone, whereby guilty sinners can be declared righteous before God by grace alone, By faith alone, because of the person and work of Jesus Christ who died on the cross. So what do we mean by grace alone? By grace alone implies it's God's sovereign choice. Because we cannot earn salvation and we do not deserve salvation. It is a free gift. And by faith alone, what do we mean by that? It means by personally accepting and trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and accepting him as our Lord and Saviour. So don't matter how good you may think you are, your good deeds won't ever earn you salvation. It's all on a free gift. Imagine, actually, if that was the case, imagine the boasting in heaven. Oh, I got here because I did. To be that would be like hell, actually. If people boasted about how they got to heaven. No, we're all there purely because of the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So God saves us purely on that. Nothing to do with who we are or what we have. Okay, It's all on that gift that's given to everyone. So if salvation is a free gift, and actually we... we don't necessarily get anything for doing good deeds as such. Um, does it matter how we live our lives? So actually, I've got my ticket, I'm going to heaven, thank you very much. You know, I've been to my Billy Graham crusade and I'm going to do my own thing now. Actually, in James, he would say, actually, it matters immensely how we live our lives. A genuine, authentic faith in Jesus Christ should compel us, motivate us to share what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. Okay. It should affect how we see ourselves. Now, I don't know how you see yourself today. You may be feeling pretty groggy. You may be feeling on top of the world. But let me just give you some things what God says about you today. If you're a Christian, He says that you are a temple of God. He says that you are His fellow worker. He says that you are His child. He says that you are His friend. That you are a saint. There you go. You're all saints. Look at one another. You're all saints. If you're a Christian, you are a saint there is no condemning charge can stand against you. You may be sitting here feeling really bad because something's gone on yesterday or last week or whatever, or even years ago, and you've got guilt. Scripture says if you are seated in Christ, no condemning charge can stand against you. You are free from that condemning. If you've repented and turned, God chooses to remember a bit anymore. You are free. So don't let the enemy rob you of your joy if you are sitting there thinking, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not worthy. No, no, you're not worthy, but actually... You are, because in Christ, you are a saint. You are God's workmanship. You are a citizen of heaven. And you are created for good works. These are not just nice words. This is what God says about you if you are a Christian today. You are significant. So don't ever let the devil tell you otherwise. The devil is very good at telling you about your past. You just need to remind him of his future. And often we, look, we think of our past, actually God has got a hope for all of us today. And it's a good hope. So how we see ourselves, and if we see ourselves in that light, then I think we see others in a good light. So we look at others. But also how do we live our life in general? So when you're going through a really bad time, situations kicking off at work, actually who you are in Christ affects actually how you handle that. Jesus in Matthew 5, 13 to 16 spoke about being salt and light in our communities. And any of you who cook here, you know salt is fantastic, but it doesn't flavour anything until to it. it touches the meat or whatever you're seasoning. Okay, so as Christians, if we're salt, we've got to touch people. We don't do it from a distance, so i pray for you. As good as praying is, there are times where God may say, no, I actually want you to get your hands dirty. I want you to go over there and I want you to do something. And often that will come at a cost, and I know that from a personal experience. When we started... Helping the Romanians who are at our school, we had a neighbour who every week would have a go. Are you getting that lot rounded? You know, but actually, no. We love these people, and we've got some really good friends in Romania now. They are are such hard-working folk, really. Um, Also, being light, our light. What we do is a light in the community. But if you read that passage, what's really key is it says your Father in heaven is praised, not us. It's not about me getting my praise. It's about actually God gets the glory. It's not about me. You, know, you can get your reward down here you know, on earth. Actually, there is a reward to come in heaven. So James is telling us that real religion, true religion, pure religion, shows itself in the care for the needy and in a godly lifestyle, unstained by the world, a life-giving faith rather than a cold, indifferent religion. And as such, that should be the hallmark of all of us. If you're a Christian, that should be a hallmark. So having read this statement about what true religion looks like, again being pure, etc. This then sets the tone for how we should address people. And um, so we can go from verses 1 to 7. And what I'm going to do today, I I like to work systematically through a passage. If you look at the top of the heading, it says a sin of partiality. It's a sin. Okay, It's quite telling. But I'll read it for you. It says, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold to the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes, also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, You sit here in a good place on the paddy pew or whatever, while you say to the poor man, Or well, you go and sit at the back, or stand at the back, or sit at my feet, Have you not made distinctions among yourself and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which He has promised to those who love Him? But have but you have dishonoured the poor man. Are not the rich ones? Oh, sorry, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honourable name by which you were called? And it's important to remember James is writing this to a group of believers. You know, hence the phrase, "my brothers." And later on we saw Beloved Brothers. He so you can almost imagine James kind of going, you know, come on guys, it shouldn't be like this. But James tells us not to show partiality. Um, so what do I mean by that word? What does James mean by that word? The dictionary says partiality can be either a favourable bias or prejudice. Other versions use the word favouritism, which I prefer this, this kind of... It says in favouring one personal group over others who have an equal... Claim. That's key here equal claim. The rich man, the poor man, had equal claims, but yet the people have decided actually I'm treated differently because by my standards. James states that whenever individually or corporately, as a church or group of people, believers, whatever, we shouldn't base our treatment or attitude of a person or people group on something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. So here it was judging the men on their outward appearance and whether they drove a Porsche or actually came on a shanks pony, okay? They were judging by wrong motives. And first reaction, we can hear this today and think, oh, I'm not aware of any partiality in my life, I don't show favouritism. And anybody who teaches or preaches, whenever you come to it, prepare, you you have to examine your heart, because I can't, and I'm, I must teach myself again today, this is the second time I'm doing it today, you know, and it's kind of like, oh, I don't think I have, and then we went holiday in France, and I was making jokes about French drivers. And actually, I thought God said, ah, ah, you've got an attitude there. And, and, and I can guarantee all of us, all of us will have some form of favouritism or partiality. If you think you haven't, then you're deceived. Because I can guarantee it. If I was to be with you for a whole week, wrote down everything you said or did, would you think, oh, hang on a minute, I didn't treat that person particularly well or that work colleague or that woman at the school gate. So I can guarantee, so not one of us can sit here today and say, this isn't relevant to me, this is relevant. And it may not be about someone's wealth, whether they've got a big house or whatever. It could be somebody's ethnic background or nationality. It could be about something of the wrong social standing. Again, there's a phrase I used earlier, people talk about Ashford called Trashford. I love Ashford. To me, it's not Trashford. I love the people. You know, God called us here. 13 years ago, I love this town, I love the people in it. And it really gets me when people call it Trashford because I think it's beautiful. Not because of where it's got nice buildings, it's the people. And I'd rather live in East Kent than West Kent, where I originated from, because I find people so much friendlier down here. But people, wrong social standing. Oh, they live in the wrong part of town, Stanhope. Anybody who lives in Ashford knows Stanhope, bit of reputation. Or it could be, I'm in Stanhope, I don't like Park Farm, they're all snobs up there. You know, watch your attitude is laughing. <laughs> the educational background, the old school tie. Anybody who works in business, you will see this. You know, I've worked in the city. I go up there now and again in my, in my current role. And you, you see it, the old school tie, the old boys. And again, wasn't that the issue with Scotland, wanting to get, you know, they called it, what is it, Westminster Village? Totally out of touch with what's going on in Scotland. There is something inherently wrong with our society. There is favouritism all over the place. We all know it, don't we? We see it every day. You read it in the papers. There is something wrong. It could be somebody's sexual or gender orientation. And this is a biggie for Christians. Homosexuality. Ooh, you know, If a homosexual came in, or transgender, how would you feel? You may think, I've got an issue, but I can, you know, it can happen. It can happen. It could be a whole host of personal opinions, politics. And I, I felt well preparing this, I felt God say to warn people, watch what you read. Some papers are very good at fueling favouritism and, and barriers, you know, about immigration and stuff like that. Watch what you read because it gets in. And before you know it, you've got a little attitude because so and so's come next door and you think, ooh, they're on benefits. It gets in. It gets in. Watch your heart. Pride is the original sin of the devil. It sets one person or group against another as the devil's strategy is always to divide and conquer. Okay, watch your heart. Whereas God has given us a ministry of reconciliation. I've got a great quote coming up now. A guy called Jonathan Swift. Probably never heard of him. Uh, 17th century, and I think this is so true today. We have just enough religion to make us hate but not enough to make us love one another. How true is that today? If you talk about religion, that's what people say. But this guy was an English poet and he was a dean in in Dublin, I think he was. But um, I think that's spot on. That tells you. And I think so many people, have just enough religion just to hate, be bigots. Whereas other people, actually, they don't take it the next step, actually, to love. And Scripture warns us, consider Jeremiah 17, 19. It says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The heart of the issue is the issue of our hearts. Okay, the heart of the issue is the issue of the hearts. And our heart can deceive us with hidden attitudes. And that's the problem of being deceived. You don't know you're being deceived. Until it's pointed out or you encounter a situation that exposes it. And many times we can deny that there is prejudice or bigotry in our hearts. Yet, as we just heard, our hearts are deceitful and sick. And in Hebrews 4.13 it says nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So what are we to do? James says to ensure you hold no partiality or favoritism to people... You must hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the embodiment of all that a good character should be and act like. So let's just look how Jesus was, okay? So Jesus didn't respect persons to gain approval. He didn't smooch or kind of network or, you know, kind of curry favour with people. Even his enemies said, said of Jesus, you aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Jesus didn't look at the outward appearance, he looked at the heart. Again, if you read the scriptures, you will clearly, clearly see that. James wasn't impressed with riches or social status. He praised the poor widow who gave her, her last coin in the temple offering, rather than the rich Pharisee who boastfully gave his large offering in the temple. <coughs> Jesus saw the potential in the lives of sinners. Whether Matthew, the publican who would one day write one of the four Gospels, or the Samaria woman at the well with multiple husbands who Jesus saw in her an instrument for reaping a harvest and a testimony. as a result of her testimony, many came to faith. Other people would have despised, don't you know who this woman is? Jesus, no, there's, a, there's someone I can use here. Look to the heart. Jesus himself was despised and rejected. He was rejected by the self-righteous nation and unlike the foxes and birds, he had no home. He grew up in a despised city of Nazareth. And the scripture says, they even said of Nazareth, you know, can anything good come out of there? Such was the stigma of that place. Scripture tells us there was nothing physically or materially that would attract us to him. The religious experts in Christ's day judged him by the human standards and they rejected him. They judged him and they rejected him. He came for the wrong city or the wrong place. He wasn't a graduate of their accepted schools of religion. He had no wealth or status in their eyes. Indeed, Jesus was a carpenter. He was just a skilled labourer. His followers were the undesirables and learning society, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the widows, the poor. Yet, he is the very glory of God. The religious experts, the rulers at the time, rejected the Son of God because he didn't tick the right boxes or or actors in the way they thought he should. He wasn't refined enough. He didn't move in the right circles. They disliked the way he connected with the common people, and they became angry when he healed people. When he would show compassion, they got angry. They hated being challenged in understanding of God and how to apply God's law. And so they plotted and arranged his murder. Yet he is the very image of God. When we judge others by our fallen human nature and wisdom, we go against God's gracious purposes. And if we consider how God has related to each one of us, while we were far and dead in our sins, God reached out. He reached out to each one of us. He looked beyond whatever mess we were in. He looked at the heart and said, here's someone I can use. Here's someone I can use. And if you look at scripture all the way through, David, Moses, they're murderers, adulterers. You know, I can use them. It's the heart God looks at. He's not impressed in your bank balance or whether you do this or do that. He wants your heart. So how do we keep ourselves from having partiality? By looking at everyone through the eyes of Christ. So, if we meet someone who's a Christian, comes into the meeting, we accept them because Christ lives in them, regardless of any outward appearance. And if they're not a Christian, we receive them because Christ died for them. It is Christ who is the link between us, and it's a link of love. It's not judgment or condemnation. And again, there's some churches out there, you just hear, you know, one, particularly in America, I'm thinking of banners and placards. How's it ever going to win anybody? By screaming at someone, you're going to hell. And where's the love? Just consider the many accounts and parables of Jesus that are instigated by his compassion. He loved people. And his heart was moved. And challenge today, if you see a situation, a neighbour, is your heart moved? Or are they an inconvenience? A work colleague who's struggling because they're hitting their targets and on a pip or whatever, are you moved? Do you, do you put your arm, to you and try and encourage them? Or do you ignore them? You know, it's a challenge. I'm preaching as much to myself. And we can't do this in our own strength, but we can't. But, but we have a helper, the Holy Spirit. And I encourage you, maybe when you go away, to say, you know, God illuminate any areas in my life where maybe I'm showing favoritism. And He will. Trust me, having prepared for this, He will. You know, but I can guarantee each one of us will have a battle in one of these areas favoritism or whatever. Verses 8 to 11, moving on. If you really fulfil the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you will become a transgressor of the law. Looking at verse 8, it talks about the royal law. You may say, Well, what's the royal law? But what James has done, he's reached back into the Old Testament. From Leviticus nineteen, eighteen, it says, You shall love your neighbour as yourself. Just a side thought. How many conflicts and wars would never have happened if we loved our neighbours? Or family disputes? Or work colleagues or whatever. You know, friendships have been ruined because saying, oh so petty. You know, are you someone who's always got the last word, always got to win? So who is my neighbour? In this parable, the Good Samaritan, Jesus told us that our neighbour is anyone who needs help. And that's Luke 10, 25 to 37. And if you say, well, you know, how do I love my neighbour? You think, if you love yourself, you feed yourself, you look after yourself, you clothe yourself. Again, likewise, you apply that to a neighbour. But it's not just a matter of immediate geography and location, e.g. the people who live next door to you, but rather that opportunity. So it could well be actually your work colleague who's going for a trial. They're your neighbour. Can you be a help to them? So the important question is not who is my neighbour, but to whom can I be a neighbour to? And uh, we've got any Trekkies here? Any Star Trek fans? (coughs) Or the other group, there were a couple. Keep your hand very low. You probably have something called the Prime Directive. Um, It's kind of like a golden rule in Star Trek where you don't interfere with any civilization that's not as advanced to kind of help them. And likewise, in a similar vein, love your neighbour is like a prime directive. It's, It's a key part of God's kingdom. Probably second only to love the Lord your God with your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength. And it's a primary foundational law for three reasons. I'm just going to cover them. So the first one is it's a divine command. It's been given by the King of Heaven. It's not up for debate. Well, actually, I don't know if I can bother God with that, you know. No, this is a a direct divine command from God. It's been given by God the Father. He's given it in his law. God the Son reaffirmed it to his disciples. And God the Holy Spirit fills our hearts with God's love. And as we as followers and disciples of Christ, we are expected to share it with others. And it's echoed by hundreds of other scriptures, but one John 41 comes to mind. And this commandment we have from him whoever loves God must also love his brother. It's not negotiable. Well, I'm not going to bother with it today. No, this, this should be a key in your life. This should be a, I said the word mantra, but you know, it should be something that's conscious in your mind loving one another. And as King's law, it's applied to his kingdom. You know, there's no point in having a law if you can't apply it to any particular kingdom or sphere. It applies to God's kingdom. And as such, if we're a Christian and we're in his kingdom, we are subject to it and governed by it. It's a bedrock, foundation of God's kingdom, a kingdom of love. Thus, it rules all other laws. Romans 13:10 says, love is the fulfilling of the law. As mentioned earlier, if we all did this, there'd be no need for thousands of other lesser laws. If people generally love their neighbour and looked out for one another, you wouldn't need a thing about border disputes and you know, marriage, whatever. You, you know where I'm going, but you're kind of saying this is key as Christians. And I really believe we have an inside sneak preview of what heaven's going to be like and the new heavens and the new earth, or what society God's going to have. Where actually this is a, this is a guiding principle, a foundational law of actually loving one another. See, hatred makes a person a slave. But love sets a person free from selfishness, bitterness, fear, and anger. Love enables us to do the word of God and treat people as God commands us to do so. And one John five three says this: "For the love of God, for this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So this shouldn't be a burden to us. It's something we should flow in. And Christian love doesn't mean I must like a person necessarily or agree with him on everything." You may not like the way he talks or their habits, you know, picking their nose or, you know, it can be some pleasant habits. Or you may not want them to have an intimate friend. But actually, Christian love means treating others the way God has treated me. It is an act of the will, not based on an emotion that I try to manufacture. And the motive is to glorify God. Again, remember Jesus' words about being salt and light, so that our deeds may cause God in heaven to be glorified. And also, Christian, love doesn't leave the person where they're at or where you find them. And again, recall the Good Samaritan. Love should help the poor man do better. Love should help the rich man make better use of his God-given resources. Love always builds up. Hate tears down. And again, if you just put it back to the first bit about religion, you know, what is considered pure by God, if we love our neighbour as ourselves, then this will be reflecting the care of those who have suffered, rejected and in need. And if you break the royal law, then, you know, don't matter how good you are at praying, how good you are at reading your Bible, whatever. If you break this law, you're kind of guilty for breaking them all. Because this is so important. And because this was the big fault with the Pharisees. The Pharisees' role at their time was to teach and master the law. So they were the experts. They knew exactly what you should do here, when and ever. In every such detail, but also they were to ensure that every individual and nationally it was adhered to. But in doing so, they were so picky, you know, got ten percent of their deal palmed out, that actually they broke the fundamentals. They broke the very law that they were trying to defend because they were so rigid. Verse 12, 13 says, So speak and act as those who are judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is about mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If we operate in God's love, then we have confidence on the day of judgment. It's not something we often talk about, the day of judgment, but there is a day in God's calendar, that's entitled day of judgment, big, big red thing around it, I don't know, on his calendar. Don't know when it is, no one does, but there is a day of judgment that everyone's going to have to face. Both Jesus and Paul assure us that as believers we will never be judged for our sins because in Christ all sin is forgiven and subsequently we are now members of God's family now and forever. Nevertheless, scripture clearly shows that our work here on the earth will be judged and rewarded accordingly. Okay, so what you're doing now, we don't get a, this is not a rehearsal for another, what you're doing now counts. You don't know when your end may be. It could be tomorrow under our bus, heaven forbid. But it could be. We do not know when, when we're called back home to glory. So let's make every day count. For, as a, as a Christian, it's not a day of judgement, rather a day of assessment. A bit like your personal development plan every year, year-end review, whatever you want to call it. But we have to give an account. You will give an account for how you have been as a husband or a wife as a parent, as a Christian whatever, you will have to give an account and what will be judged, it says our words will be judged if you consider the conversation James 2, three spoken to the visitors what we say to people and how we say it will come up before God even our careless words will be judged You know, words like toothpaste the minute they're out, they're out, you can't get them back words have power but it may be how you've spoken to a work colleague or your wife or your spouse or your children or well, you've cut them down. Words have power and we will be judged. We have to give an account. We not judge. We have to give an account for how we, we talk to one another. Again, you think Jesus said, if you say to your brother, fall, he says you're in the risk of the fires of hell. And Jesus very clearly in the Sermon on the Mount warns us about our speech. And again, I'm not seeing someone's fund it for the next week or whatever. But how we talk, you know, our tongue loves to boast. It can be really wicked. We can cut someone down. I mean, we all probably seen, maybe in our own lives, where someone says something and we, we shut down. Maybe might be when you're a child and you've gone and you've just been cut down by your, your mum or dad or somebody says something. Words have power and we will be judged for our words. You need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of that. We have to give an account. So Jesus emphasised caution. Watch what you say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than that is from the devil, he said. Our deeds will be judged. Whilst it's true that God chooses to remember our sins no more, our sin affects our character and work. We cannot sin lightly and serve faithfully. Now, we're never going to be perfect on this earth. Hence why we've got the gift of repentance. We keep going back. We, you, know, you drop the ball, you go back to God, I'm sorry. But you can't sin... And expect to serve God um, faithfully. Because what does sin do? It corrupts, it, it kills. God forgives our sins when we confess them to Him, but He cannot change their consequences. You think of David, committed adultery, murdered the husband, tried to cover it up, repercussions for him, his family, generations. And you see that in some families. Something's happened, some, some sins happen, and you see repercussions going through generations. But our deeds will be judged. Our attitudes will be judged. And James Close highlights in two contrasting attitudes, showing mercy to others and refusing to show mercy. Mercy and justice both come from God. So where God finds repentance and faith, he is able to show mercy. Where God finds rebellion and unbelief, he must administer justice. It is the heart of the sinner that determines the treatment he gets. God sends no one to hell. The sinner does. Okay, God sends no one to hell. It's the sinner who chooses to go. And that's why we have a mission to send the good news to let people know, actually, because heaven is not a default destination. That's, that, that's part of our mission. So if you say, well, how do I do... No, your mission is to share the good news. So in closing, I think there are three main themes that come out today. Firstly, religion. What religion do you project to others? Do people know you're a Christian, but they say behind your back, God, that person's a Christian? Trust me, because the minute you say you're a Christian, typically in the workplace or school or whatever, people's bar or what you should be like goes up here somewhere. You, you know, you all agree with that? Oh, yeah, you call yourself a Christian? You know. But, the, the, you know, truth, truthfully, what sort of religion do you project? Are you known as someone? who helps and I'm gonna, I'm gonna my wife's not here but I'm gonna embarrass her um she's not here but um somebody was sick in the shop and she went to pray for them and um you know that's my wife she's just very good at being you know I'll pray for you but it's interesting since then people will come to find her out because they want to well you know can you pray for me it's nothing she's kind of drummed up but it but people are desperate for good news people are desperate for hope Showing partiality Again, we're all guilty of this. You know, I'm much talking to myself. Again, so ask the Holy Spirit. And then finally, live in the royal law. And I'm very conscious. It's quite a punchy, kind of direct, probably how I've been. You're probably thinking "On oh my life. There is hope. I don't want people feeling despairing. We, we have a faithful God. Again, I said earlier, you're saints. No condemning charge will stand against you. But if, if you're walking in sin, I will encourage you to address it. Um, but there is hope. There is hope at the cross. We can come. And you've got the Holy Spirit to help you. So I want to encourage you. If, if you think, actually, I'm struggling, come and see me or Carl afterwards or in your small group, whatever. You know, we'll happily pray for you. Um, but I would say, if you can't do it in your own strength, we, we do need the Holy Spirit. And that's why God is so wise. He's given his Holy Spirit to help us. So, you know, don't, don't ignore that hope, that opportunity you've got to get some help. Um,